Mark Twain, the American humorist and author, said memorably, It ain't the parts of the Bible I can't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. And today we may encounter one of those parts for you that is easy to under, understand but hard to accept. We haven't had too many difficult sections in our ride through 1 Timothy so far. Remember the purpose of the book is described in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says to his protege, I, have come to you, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that, you, so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So these directions Paul gives to Timothy, these are directions for this setting in that day and age, but they're also directions for every faithful church of every day and every age. That's why we're calling this Life Together Instructions on Being the Church. So far through our journey, <clears throat> you probably haven't had your toes stepped on. We've heard, don't follow false teachers who throw legalism upon you, and everybody probably is like, okay, great, no problem. We've heard the Old Testament law, it's given to show us the difference between right and wrong, and you go, okay, cool, that's good to know. Then we had Jesus who came into the world to save sinners. Excellent. Hooray. Then we hear in chapter 2 that we should pray that all people might be saved because that reflects the heart of God. And you say, man, it's great to know God's heart's like that. And then we hear that there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ, the man Christ Jesus. And you say, okay, glory. Now today, Paul's going to step on our toes. Buckle up. And this is one of the reasons we're committed to expositional preaching it here at Center Church. This means the majority of our diet is going to be us preaching through books of the Bible or large sections of books because if we do this, we're going to cover topics we wouldn't normally cover. I would never preach this if it wasn't expositionally, if it wasn't right here in the Bible. I would never say, you know what, I really want to offend people today. You know what? So let's do that. No, actually, actually I don't. But what we're committed to is the exposition, which means the opening up of God's Word. And we're submitted to the authority of God's Word, whether it bristles against our, our 21st century American sensibilities or not. And so we're going to read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse, verses 8 through 15. And here's the main idea. We as a church must follow God's good creational design for both men and women in the church. We, as a church, must follow God's good creational design for both men and women in the church. I'll show you where I got that from in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. If you have a Bible, follow along. I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. <coughs> Excuse me. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in res respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls of costly attire. 
but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's pray. Lord, I need your help this morning, just like every morning when we gather. We gather this morning to open your word, and as we open your word, and as I read your word, we heard from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help me to faithfully exposit these words, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to be men and women and boys and girls who submit to your word and not to American sensibilities and mores and customs and conventional wisdom. But instead, Lord, I pray that we would be those that look to your word and let your word guide and direct us in every facet of our lives, even when it's uncomfortable. It's in your name, Jesus. It's in your, only, it's in your name, and it's, it's, it's in you only do we have hope. Amen. Two points this morning. The gathered church, a place of peace and a place to grow. The gathered church, a place of peace and a place to grow. First, the gathered church, a place of peace. The Sunday gathering, what we're doing here today, is meant to be the one time each week when we collectively meet with God together. This is something you cannot do on your own, obviously. One theologian says he or she who wants to see God must then must come to church to the sanctuary of God where he is seen in the word and sacraments. In the church service, he, being God, descends to us and we can see him. It is the Holy Spirit who elevates us to heaven by means of these external aids. So we see Jesus through the preaching of the word. We see Jesus through the word of God being exposited. And so, what we want to do is conduct ourselves in matters as men and women that the the Scriptures direct. We want to recognize that as a church, we are not free to make things up as we go along. And there are certain things that, that the Bible addresses about how we are to be a household of God. And in our section, Paul addresses men and he addresses women. Men, he says, don't fight, pray. Women, he says, Don't flaunt your looks. Do good works. For we all know that men can get angry easily, let anger anger simmer and sour, and lead to all manner of fighting and quarreling, with both parties refusing to back down. Women are obviously much prettier than men. And they can dress in such a way to draw attention to themselves, right? We know this. So let's go and turn. Look at verse 8. Men, I desire that that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, it must be stated right up at the beginning that we only have a small bit of direction given to men. That's verse 8. And then verses 9 through 15 is to women. I think that's because 
Guys can only handle short sentences and only a little bit at a time. And so Paul says, guys, don't fight, pray. Okay, don't fight, pray, don't fight, pray. We must be a people as men. We must, as men, be the way that we, we must be those that instead of quarreling and, quarreling and fighting, we must pray. Now, men, typically, the way they handle disagreements with each other, whether they're 6 or 96, is to quarrel and fight. When you're younger, guys can go to blows. When you're older, you can hold on to anger, and sometimes it can just burst out on other people. Paul is saying, essentially, men... You used to settle your disagreements by fighting and quarreling, but no more. You are followers of Jesus. You now settle your disagreements, and they will still happen, by praying together in unity. When Christian men gather, especially in the same church, praying and not fighting should break out. That's the idea. And our job as men is to be the ones who lead in keeping peace and prayer, to lead in keeping peace and pursuing God. There are going to be times we disagree, but that's not license to get angry and quarrel, but it's, it's a call to forgive, overlook, and extend peace. Is there anyone you're angry with? Got to ask yourself that question. Are you holding on to it or are you praying for them? It sounds simple, it sounds reductionistic, but it's not. You will not and cannot be long angry with others if you pray with and for them. So men, the church gathering is for peace and for prayer. Ladies, you have direction too. Verse 9, Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, it's, it's, it's important to recognize what Paul is saying. He's not saying it's wrong to wear gold or pearls, uh, but what he's doing here is saying, ladies, it's wrong if, you, if the reason you come to the church gathered to be noticed by what you're wearing or not wearing if you come to be noticed, that's not the reason that you, to come to a gathering. Your adornment ought not to be in with the beauty of your clothes or the amazing way that you do your hair, but you are to, you're called to adorn yourselves, as Paul says, with good works. Paul's not saying that it's wrong to look nice or respectable. Here it's about motive. If you dress to be noticed, no matter what you wear, you're off base. And this runs completely counter to the world that we live in. Women in our world constantly get noticed for what they look like. And it's easy to bring that same mindset into church gatherings. But notice the direction we have here. Paul says, if you're going to be known by something, don't make it what you wear or what you look like, but make it what you do, your good works. Christian women are to adorn themselves with good deeds toward others. Instead of radiating beauty and charm, you are to radiate the beauty of servanthood to and for other people. In other words, you come on Sunday not to be noticed, but to serve. That's, that's the idea. So men, no fighting, pray. Women, the gathered church, 
is for serving others, not for being noticed. And as I read this and studied this passage this week, there's, I was just struck again with how grateful I am to be able to be a part of this church and to be able to play a role in leading this church because there are so many men and women who are exactly who are exemplifying these directions here in 2 Timothy chapter 8, verses 8 through 10. Men who pray and don't quarrel. Women who do good works. This is what we're called to do. This is who we're called to be when we gather together as a church. Yet, we know that there's always room for us to grow. Here are some questions I submit to you for self-reflection that might be helpful to give you some consideration on how you might grow. Men, are you an angry person? Are you the kind of person who's easy to approach or hard because of your temper? Are you willing to overlook an offense and forgive and not be angry in order to make peace? Are you typified by being angry or by prayer? Do you spend more time praying for others or expressing anger at others? Helpful questions for all of us to consider, late men. Ladies, do you care more about what you have to wear or who you can serve? Would you rather be noticed for your appearance or for your good works? Do you spend more time on your appearance or more time serving others in any given Sunday? Listen, none of us are who we should be. But part of following Jesus is responding to the Holy Spirit when he convicts you through the word. The Lord is good and he is committed to us. That means he will not allow us to be who we are today, but he will mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways he does that is through conviction. Go again to your father knowing that Jesus is your advocate. He's opened the way and there is forgiveness. Say you're convicted for being angry or say you're convicted for the way you think about your appearance. We, we go to Jesus, we go to the Lord again through Jesus, ask forgiveness and he will also give us strength to keep fighting so that we might be able to follow his good purpose. The gathered church is to be a place of peace and good works. Secondly, the gathered church is a place to grow. The gathered church is a place to grow. Now, in verses 11 through 15, this is definitely the most controversial part of this passage. And I'll say right now, you may have lingering questions over this, these verses even after I'm finished talking about them. But tonight, what we're going to do is I'm going to conduct an in-depth study on these verses, and I will answer any and all questions you have, just come at 7 o'clock. If you're a member, you received a link. If you're interested in coming and you're not a member, all you need to do is email us at info at centergilbert.com and we will send you a link and you can participate. I will walk through the passage again tonight and talk about all the objections that people have in this passage. And I'll also give a paper that I've written so that you can sort of have it, look at it if you want, if you're interested in further study so you don't have to feel like you need to take copious notes. Now, the gathered church, as we said, is a place to grow, and Paul has in mind women here. We see this because he says in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, those are almost fighting words. He is not saying, ladies, quiet, 
we want to see you, not hear from you. That's not what he's saying. We need to set the context here for just a moment. We're 2,000 years removed from this setting, and in our culture, our culture's view of women is radically different than it, than it, than it was today than it was then. In that day, women were viewed as little more than property. Husbands could treat their wives however they wished, and they were protected by law. It is Christianity that paved the way for women to be protected, to be educated, and to be empowered. Now, when we read, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, we think, how can he say, be submitted like that? We get offended there. All he's saying there is, women, listen to the word of God being preached and submit to the authority of God's word. Okay, great. That, that makes sense. Now, what's radical in Paul's day is the first part of that sentence. Let a woman learn quietly. For Paul to say, let a woman learn is radical. Now, we don't think of it this way. That's because Christianity has changed the world and women are now educated and they can read. Verse 11 to the original audience would have shocked them. Why? Because the normal Jewish mindset, the normal Greek mindset, was that women couldn't learn. Rabbi Eliezer ben Hyrcanus said, the words of the Torah should be burned rather than entrusted to women. That means taught. He's saying, instead of teaching the Bible to women, burn it. It's better. Now, this is not the mindset Paul had, and this is not the mindset we have. The gathered church is a place to grow, and it's a place to learn for everybody. For everybody. And the reason that we take for granted that women can learn is because Christianity has taught everyone. Christianity has this vested interest in educating men and women alike so that everybody can read and understand the Bible. That's not the way the culture was. And if you go to other parts of the world, that's not the way it is now. In other parts of the world, there are women who are property and they do not, men do not want their wives to learn. That is not the case here, and that's not the case with any biblical church. Then he says something far more controversial. And we're going to walk, we're going to slow down, downshift, and go through it step by step in verse 12. Look at verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, you might think that what we need to do is delve into the vagaries of Greek syntax and grammar to understand what Paul is really saying here, but we don't. The meaning's clear. It's just a little bit hard to take. What's he saying? He's saying that he does not permit or it's unbiblical, for a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the gathered church. That's clear. The role of women in the church is not to teach or exercise authority. These are two different and distinct things. This is not meaning that they are to be quiet all the time. This is the gathered church that we're talking about here. Why? Why are, are we given this direction by Paul? Now remember, we've said this before, and we say, we'll say it again, that any time we're given a command, we're always, every time, given a reason. So what is the reason that Paul would say, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? Rather, she is to remain quiet. Is it because she's less capable? No. Is it because she's gullible? No. 
What is it then? Verse 13 starts the answer. For. Now, anytime you see the word for, F-O-R, he's explaining why. So here's his explanation as to why it is unbiblical for a woman to teach or have authority. Why? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. That might not seem like much, but what Paul's doing here is he's looking to the order of creation, and he's looking to God's original design in creation, and he's thinking about Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is, is, is where we get the account of Adam and Eve. Well, Adam naming—well, I'm going to read it. I'll read it to you, and you, you, can, you can know what the account is. Let's refresh our memories. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam... There was, no help, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Adam's exerting authority as the Lord's vice regent on earth, right? He's naming the animals. We have a giraffe. He names the giraffe. He names the alligators. He names the lizards. He names a dog, and he says, man, you could be my friend, but you're not my helper, so why don't you stay here? He names the cat, and they go on their own way. And so all these animals come along, and there's not one that's a helper fit for him. So... The Lord, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took out one of the ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. So we see here, Adam saying, yes, this is a helper suitable for me. Amen. Hallelujah. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Adam, again, he's created to be God's vice regent in all of creation. And his leadership was expressed by naming all the creatures. Then, because there was not a creature fit to help Adam, God created Eve, a co-equal heir, co heir with a different role. Adam and Eve are equal, yet different. Adam was to lead, and Eve was to intelligently help and support. This purpose has been this purpose is a God-given purpose that has been passed down to us. It's important to see that these roles are given by God and are not arbitrary. They're not tradition. It's not just an empty, this is the way we've always done things. It's also important to see that these roles were given by God before the scourge of sin had tarnished creation and Adam and Eve. So God has a good design 
for males and females. This also means it is not random or happenstance or arbitrary that you are either a man or a woman. God made you that way. If you're a woman, God made you that way, and he has given you a specific role in a way that you can honor him in a way men cannot. If you're a man, God made you that way, and he has given you a specific role, and you can honor him in a way women cannot. And the church is to capture something of this Edenic paradise. Men are to lead as servants, laying their lives down, not lording it over, not taking advantage, not bullying. Women, following is not second best. This does not mean that you check your brain or aspirations at the door. Intelligent, godly femininity means your role is going to look different than the men in the church. Why? Because that's God's good design. How do we know? Paul points our attention back to God's original created purpose in the Garden of Eden. That's why. So why does Paul, like notice the logic here, why does Paul say, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man? Why? Because that's the way God created men and women. God created us differently. That's, that's the idea. Now, we get a further reason. We get a further reason. Look at verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Eve was deceived before Adam. Adam would be held responsible. We can see that through the rest of the Bible. Read Romans 5. But Eve was deceived first. This does not mean that women are more gullible than men. Paul is just stating facts. Eve ran ahead of Adam and violated God's created order by interacting with Satan on her own without Adam. And Adam didn't lead. That's what happened and you read it and you say, okay, so what does that mean? <laughs> it's fascinating because Eve, Paul says Eve was deceived and ate. Then he says Paul, Adam was not deceived and he ate anyway. <laughs> you want to go? So wait a minute. You're telling me Eve talks to Satan and she's tricked. Adam overhears the conversation. He's not tricked, but he goes, okay, I'll eat anyway. Now, who's the bigger fool? Adam is a dunderhead moron. Right? So here we have Adam who should know better. He wasn't tricked, and yet he ate anyway. And we can see that the roles get messed up right there in Genesis chapter 3. Instead of Adam, see what, what should have happened when Satan comes and approaches Eve, Adam should have grabbed Satan by his little snake neck, break, broken it, and thrown it out of the garden. Get out of here. You have, no, you have no cause to talk to my wife. And Eve should have said, hey, there's a snake coming who talks, and I'm going to need help working this one out. But she didn't. She thought she could handle it on her own. And then everything goes topsy-turvy. See that? And the created order was turned upside down. That's what happened. That's what happened. So one of the reasons that, well, we'll get there in a minute. And then things get strange in verse 15. 
Now, this is, this is one of those verses that is not stitched into any pillows you have at home. It's not going to be Caleb's verse of the day. I've never met anybody who had this tattooed on their arm. But here it is. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, is Paul saying we're saved by grace through faith and women through having children? No, he's not. And we must remember the context. Remember, Paul is already, we see, we've seen in verse 13 and 14 that Paul is thinking about Genesis 2 and 3. So he's telling us, remember, Eve was deceived first. Adam, like a moron and dunderhead, went ahead and eat anyway, ate anyway, even though he wasn't deceived. He, was, he ate. Then we get to Genesis 3. What happens in Genesis 3? In Genesis 3, after they eat and after the fall, God comes to them and curses. Like He, he brings curses because there's always curses. There's always punishment associated with sin. And so he comes and he first punishes and curses the snake and says, you're going to be on the ground forever, later. Then he says to the woman, then, then, lastly, he talks to the man and says, you're going to break your back in, in working the ground so that you can just feed your family. It wasn't going to be easy. Now it's going to be hard. Have fun. And then the second thing he says to the woman, this is what's germane to our section. Remember, verse 15, she will be saved through childbearing. And then we see Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Here's God speaking to the woman. He said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, one just basic biological fact is that only women can have children. Now, another basic biological fact is that it hurts. Can I get an amen? That just is real. That's real. And why does it hurt? Well, because the curse of sin, one of the curses, one of the effects of the fall, is that childbearing, which should have been a joyous, wonderful occasion, is painful. And there's another curse that comes. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. <laughs> that one is fascinating. We should do a whole sermon on that. But what's it saying here? What he's saying here is this. Women, there will be something inside you that chafes against godly leadership, any leadership. Why? Because that's the curse of sin. And so if there's something in you even now, or even as we read this passage, or as you're hearing this, that's sort of rising up, saying, I don't like that, naturally. We can see in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, that you weren't going to like it. That's part of the curse. There's a desire to domineer and control, especially husbands, but also in other contexts as well. So what is Paul saying? Let's go back to verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now what does that mean? The entry of sin into the world brought the curse of pain that is now associated with childbearing. He does not mean when he says she will be saved 
through childbearing, he does not mean that women will experience salvation when and if they have children. Instead, the idea is that women will be preserved, Christian women will be preserved even through this curse. That's the idea. A paraphrase of verse 15 might be helpful. Usually when we read the word through, T-H-R-O-U-G-H, we think by means of, right? So when we read in verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing, we think that might mean by means of. That's not the idea here. The idea here is more like our word through, T-H-R-U, going through something. So a woman, is a Christian woman, is preserved as she goes through the cursed, the now cursed activity of having children. That's the idea. Women are preserved. Here's the paraphrase I wrote. Yet she will be preserved as she endures the curse of sin that brought pain in childbearing if she continues in the faith and love and holiness with self-control. And when he says continues in faith and love and holiness with self-control, that's just, that's just women continuing to show that they're saved and showing fruit in keeping with repentance. Women are not saved by childbearing, but they are saved even as they're preserved through the pain of childbearing, which is a cause, which is caused by the curse of sin. Now, does that mean that women who do not have children or are not married or have not had kids are any less? No, not at all. Not at all. Rather, it means men and women are given God-ordained roles that we must express here at our church and every faithful church must express as well. See, the reason Paul gives that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man is rooted not in empty tradition or just the way we do things or because we're parochial or patriarchal, but because of God's good purpose in creation, God's purpose for both men and women. This applies, this applies primarily and uniquely when in the local church, especially in the gathered church. That's the idea. So we are to express our God-given roles as Christian men and Christian women, as men lead. Now, I got to say this as well. Not every man is called to lead in the church. How do we know? First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. That's next week. We'll find out who's called to lead. But only men are called to lead in that way. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 provides clear standards. But that's for next week. The gathered church is to be a place of peace and of good works. Today, there's a lot of talk about toxic masculinity. Why? Because a lot of masculinity and a lot of leadership is not tied to servanthood. And therefore, it is not biblical leadership. See, a leader, a Christian leader, a Christian man is the one who is the lead servant and he is the one who lays down his life. He is the one who sacrifices his interests, his preferences. He's the one who gives of himself so that others might be served. That's leadership. That's leadership. That's leadership. Toxic masculinity is when there are men who 
pridefully take upon themselves a mantle or some kind of right to where they can boss people around and tell them what to do. That is not what masculinity is, biblically speaking. Sir, men are called to serve and to lead. Listen, we follow Jesus. He is meek and he is mild and he lays, laid down his rights for our good. This is what we as leaders are called to do, men. A leader is not to point to himself, but he's to point away from himself to Christ. That is leadership. And I wonder, I wonder if this idea of toxic masculinity would be in our culture if there were more men who willingly, who willingly gave of themselves and served. Ladies, you might think, man, leadership is up here. Following and helping is down here. That's not the case. They're just different roles. Think about it this way. Ladies and guys, we follow Jesus. And that's not less. That's not less. It's not like we have to sort of check our brains and not ask questions and just be brainless and be seen and not. No. What we have is a Savior who asks us to constantly put our, to put our faith in Him and constantly follow Him. We follow Him. So everybody is following somebody. Everybody. Leaders in the church have a different responsibility, and they're called to lead in such a way so that people see Christ. Ladies, you're called to come alongside and support and help. See, in the church, what we have, what we have in the local church, in any faithful local church, is the beginning of the reversal of the curse of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the curse upon men and women. But when we become Christians, when we become new creations, it's the beginning of this curse being lifted. No longer are we as Christians dominated by sin. No longer will we pay for sin. No longer are we seen as, as primarily as sinners in the eyes of God. What we are are saints who have been forgiven and redeemed, and Jesus who died for us lives for us now. That is how we're seen. And now what we see here is an opportunity for us as Christian men and women, as men and women, to follow Jesus intellectually with all of our hearts and all of our lives, and as men lead and pray and express peace, and as women follow and intelligently submit themselves to God's Word, the curse of sin slowly starts to unravel. It won't be perfect. It's going to be a mess. But one day it will be. One day it will be. And it's our call, men, it's our call, women. It's our call, Center Church, to express God's good desire for us and how we live together as a church and the character of our church as we gather. That's what it is. That's who we are. Men work for peace, women follow. It's our calling, it's our privilege, 
And it's an opportunity to roll that curse back and live in the good of what Christ has done for us. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, we, we need your help, Lord. Um, I know that there are people here who probably just are chafing. Maybe people in this room or others watching are chafing under this teaching, and I understand it, Lord. Um, but I pray that you would just help us all, Lord, to be able to submit ourselves to the authority of your word. I pray that we would, as men and women and boys and girls, sit under your word, for your word is a light into our path, Lord. And so I pray that your word would light our path forward, even as we think about gender and sex, even as we think about men and women, even as we think about the order that is to be expressed here at our church. Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church in some small way to live in the good of the curse reversed. Lord, I pray that you would all the more, I see this, but I pray all the more, you would help men to be agents of peace and prayer. I pray that you would help women to adorn themselves with good works as we all press forward to honor you. Lord, help us to be a people who fix ourselves upon you, derive our identity from you, and look to live in the good of what you've done for us. This we cannot do on our own. This we need your help. It's in your name we pray. Amen.